I had to still face everyday life, and it was spring, and there were pregnant ladies and new babies everywhere, and I was the person without a baby whose placenta had failed. During pregnancy, many women develop a constant plaguing phobia of some ill befalling the growing life inside them. But most of the time, thankfully, these remain phobias and reflect an overactive imagination. The story we're going to hear today sadly falls into one of the very small percentage of late-term pregnancies that end tragically. So, if you're not in the right headspace to hear this today, you might want to sit this one out for now and come back when you're feeling ready. Though I don't want to paint this episode as one of darkness. The woman who lived through this shadowy journey has made her life's work in part by making people laugh. Weaving the darker experiences of life into comedic expression has offered her levitous reprieve despite not alleviating her pain. This is Mother's Project, a podcast that celebrates the relationship between motherhood and the creative work mothers do. I'm Ariel Lavery. And the woman whose story we're going to hear today... My name's Amelia White, and I'm an interdisciplinary artist. I'm working primarily in writing and theater and performance art and also video and animation. I have a background in puppetry. I'm teaching time-based media as a full-time lecturer at the Stamps School of Art and Design at the University of Michigan. And I also have two children at home. I guess I should say two living children at home. One of them is will be six in February. His name is Arlo. And then my little one is 11 months old, and her name is Luella. Her birthday is the day after Christmas, actually, so oh, coming yeah. up. <laughs> Yay! <laughs> yes. <laughs> Amelia had a pretty interesting life as a young adult. After graduating with her BFA and spending a few years living and working in Seattle, She got a one-way ticket paid to travel to Taiwan to spend time as a puppetry artist with the Dream community in New Taipei City, Taiwan. There, she helped create and design these giant pageant parades for the community. And while there, she was inspired by the music and traditional arts of Indonesia and got a scholarship to go and study art as a resident for a year. One year in Indonesia stretched into several as she found more work, got more scholarships, and fell in love. After three years in Indonesia, she wanted to go back to school in the U.S. and bring her new love with her. An Indonesian wedding was planned. If you visit Amelia's website, you'll quickly learn that she is a woman of comedy. Her puppets, films, and performances might be described as hysterical and fantastical. I just, I'm curious if you were always drawn to comedic expression, or if you had early stimulus as a child that kind of brought you there. My parents are funny, so that's always been an influence. I was thinking about in, you know, way back even to fourth grade, I would do these like video projects for school. And I always loved to create these characters and kind of um, perform, you know, 
create these scenarios. I, you know, I had different characters and, and they were all kind of funny. Like one of them, I had my nose taped up. Um, another one, I was impersonating a boy, another boy who was in my class. So, uh, and my mother would, you know, be the background. She would do the video. One of your characters that you developed, it looked like this character came after grad school, Jeb. Oh, yeah. And I'm, I don't know how to pronounce his first two names. <laughs> no one really does. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's sort of a ridiculous name. I've thought about renaming him, but it just the name yeah. fits with the absurdity of the character. Yeah, his name is Bwajiz Jeb. Um, actually, the funny thing about that character is that character was sort of based off of this reggae star that I had known as a kid. I grew up in Northern California. In video documentation of Jeb's appearance at the Dumbo Arts Festival in Brooklyn, we see him wandering around, talking to strangers completely naked, asking them to draw his portrait. Amelia donned a skin suit that appears stuffed to replicate a bulging stomach, a buttocks dimpled with cellulite, and of course, exposed genitals. Yeah, hi ladies. So it became a lot more about his body and being naked, you know, a naked old man and kind of what we think of that and how that makes people uncomfortable, but kind of in a very approachable uh, way where people were able to come and um, actually draw portraits of me posing as him. Can he come out on a whim or is it something you have to prepare for? I just have to position my face in a, in a certain way, and it kind of influences the rest of my body. I was just curious if there was any way we could meet him right now. Okay. <laughs> Hi, folks. How are ya? This is Buzz's Jeb coming to you all the way from cold as butt Michigan. <laughs> that was a funny joke. <laughs> How are ya, pretty lady? Did your sense of humor or horror change? after you're having your first son, because your sense of humor in your work is, um, it can be sort of dark and ironic. I'm curious if if that any of that altered or if you just took note of the alterations in those senses of humor and horror at all. Yeah, I mean, I, I feel like the my sense of humor didn't change so much um, after my son was born. I mean, I guess it evolved in new ways. Um, and in terms of the horror, like, it's interesting because, like, you know, I have done horror. My graduate thesis project was a silent horror film. Um, and and I agreed, like, after my son was born that, I, you know, I didn't want to watch scary things or read about scary things. I think because, you know, part of it is there's a vulnerability with having a child and and seeing your child's life um, sort of, you know, like you're in charge of taking care of them. You don't 
want them to die, um, you know, and and there's a lot of fear and anxiety, I guess, in, in caring for another human being. I initially learned about Amelia's work through a friend of hers who had participated in one of her projects. Parent Skins presents as a series of photographs taken while actual parents wear around a full bodysuit, covering head and all. The suits are bright yellows, reds, purples, and greens, and have expressionless faces sewn into them. The photographs are taken in the everyday environment, washing dishes, changing a diaper. They're eerie images to see, kids surrounding this semblance of a parent. So how did your project Parent Skins germinate in your mind? Because that came out, that project came out after your first child was born. So I'm just curious if you can talk about what was going on in your life and and in your kind of mental state that Mm -hmm. brought about that project. Yeah, you know, the bodysuit became an interest of mine because it basically masked the entire body. Um, And it was just the basic they're called Zentai suits that you can buy online. Um, but then, so I had one of those, and I, you know, I don't know what spurred it, but I started to sew, you know, kind of play around with sewing faces into it. I really, I went on a big sewing kick sort of before my son was born and then afterwards because, you know, it's just, I felt like it was a little more accessible of a medium. I just had my sewing machine and all these fabrics. You know, it was a very spontaneous process. I was just kind of playing around and um, playing with sewing and, and looking for ways to be creative, you know, in my everyday life. So um, at some point I put one on and had my husband take a picture of me. And then because I was just with, you know, parenting all the time, um, that's kind of how it evolved into me, you know, wearing it and and taking photos with my with my son or in the space or in the room. But the participatory aspect of it, you know, didn't come until I think a couple of years later because then I started to, you know, invite friends and people I know and women in my this mother's group that I'm a part of. Um, they had seen the photos of it maybe on social media, so they were kind of asking, you know, about what it was, what I was doing. And, and at some point I was like, hey, do any of you want to wear it? So they were actually the ones that kind of inspired me to start uh, the participation part of the project. It was really fun to to give them you know, the bodysuits to them and, and see what they came up with. And, and there were some really great photographs. In your On your website, you talk about how it's this series that, quote, tackles topics of postpartum depression and isolation. And so I was wondering if, if that sort of like came out in any of the performative qualities of uh, right. the participants. Yeah, I think with that, I mean, and those were that was still very much the early stages of the mm. project. So I was, I felt like it was less. I, I wasn't framing it around postpartum depression at the time. Um, it was more just sort of, you know, about being overwhelmed as a parent um, in you know just the day to day activities. 
you know, and some of the photographs that the participants, you know, from my mom's group took, like one of them, she's doing Pilates um, with one of the Pilates machines while her son takes a nap in her basement. Um, and that was just, I like, I would interpret that more as like self-care. Yeah, I didn't really start to think about framing it around postpartum depression as a topic um, until later on, actually more recently. So it kind of spoke to me in a new way of being, you know, like hidden within the environment of parenting, you know, as a parent um, and kind of feeling like you've lost your identity or you're disappearing or like an alien, you know, in your own skin. comedy functioned for you to help kind of process these heavier and darker experiences in your life? Well, I mean, I've always appreciated humor as a way to look at the lighter side of things. And I think that comedy helps make the darker things more accessible to talk about and also to share with other people. Um, Although there have been periods of my life where I haven't been able to find the humor in it at all. Um, and it's taken a long time to get back to it again. Mm-hmm. So there's definitely been times when just comedy has, has not been present. This is the moment in the episode where if you're feeling sensitive or vulnerable today, you may want to pause and listen later. Amelia's life, with all its excitement, love, and adventure, was about to take her on a new kind of journey with her second pregnancy. So my older son was, I think, about two and a half when I got pregnant with my second son. And everything went fine in the pregnancy until the very end. And my first son's birth was really such a positive experience. I mean, I also saw the nurse midwives, and um, he was born, you know, in the water. This was at the hospital hospital. in under six hours, there were no complications. You know, I felt really empowered by that experience. So there was sort of an assumption um, between, you know, me and also the nurse midwives that there would be a similar experience with my second labor. I mean, I actually, during the pregnancy, I did feel there were some symptoms that I was sort of unsure about. And, and actually, in the weeks before my son um, was born, I did kind of... Um, call the midwives a lot and express my concern. And actually, I had an appointment um, the day before my 37-week appointment, and, and I had expressed concern and concerns, and it was all sort of brushed off, like, oh, no, it's fine. It's totally normal pregnancy stuff. We listened to the heartbeat, and she said, you have a happy, healthy baby in there. And I was like, yeah, but look at my feet. Like, they're so swollen. Is that normal? The next day, she woke up with contractions. 
I thought I was in labor. Um, so my husband and I went to the hospital, you know, thinking, oh, it's a little early, but, you know, my first son was born at 38 weeks, so maybe I thought it was just an early labor. And it wasn't until we got to the hospital that they were trying to find the heartbeat and they couldn't find his heartbeat. They brought in the ultrasound machine and were looking there and eventually they said, I'm so sorry, but there's no heartbeat. And that was just devastating. I mean, I had no idea that this was going to happen. Amelia was in shock that somehow her son, whose heartbeat she had heard just a day earlier, was no longer there. And while struggling to process this information, the nurse midwife started expressing concern for Amelia's life as well, telling her, Your blood pressure is incredibly high. It's a, it was, I think, about 180 over 100 at that time. This intense spike in blood pressure over a short period of time is a hypertensive emergency in a normal person. In a pregnant woman, it can mean worse. Within that short period of time, I started to see blurry I started to feel in my body that something was not right, um, so I was having trouble. I mean, I was basically on the brink of a seizure, and my you know, kidneys were almost failing. The doctors and nurses swarmed in. To suddenly have 50 people in the room running around me and not being able to see through the spots in my vision and, and being told in the middle of the night that I had help syndrome and, you know, they were trying to help me, but it felt like I was, you know, on the brink of going to die. And while the medical staff buzzed around the room, Amelia tried to locate her husband. In the worst moments of it, in the chaos of all the people in the room, I didn't know where he was. For many partners, a healthy birth can be an overwhelming experience. Amelia's husband was unequipped to deal with the severity of the situation. He retreated. He was out in the waiting room on the phone with family, trying to talk to them and tell them what was happening, but also just being really overwhelmed by the situation and afraid that he was going to watch me die. They needed to get the placenta out of Amelia's body as quickly as possible to save her life. Her body had gone into labor on its own, and her labor had continued to progress, so they offered her pain management. They did give me an epidural, which I regretted doing. When they were putting the epidural in is when I had to push, so that was a really like uncomfortable situation as well, like having something poked into my back and suddenly being in excruciating pain. With IV fluids delivering magnesium sulfate and the epidural in, she began to push. 
Her vision was completely blurred and black spots floated in front of her. But she remembered looking up at the fluorescent light above her and seeing the reflection of a growing pool of blood. He was stillborn at almost 37 weeks in April of 2017. Amelia stayed at the hospital for five days after her son was born, in part to be monitored. They had her hooked up to an EKG to monitor her kidneys, which were close to failing. But this was also a bit of a gift. My son's body was on a cooling cot. Cuddle cots are a new way some hospitals have been able to help grieving parents of stillborn babies by keeping the baby's body cool enough to spend up to five days cuddling, dressing, kissing, and holding them. So I did have five days to hold him and, and sort of make some, some memories. My older son, he, uh, from the second night, um, stayed in the hospital with us. They, they actually broke the hospital rules and let, allowed my son to stay. So he slept in the hospital bed next to me the whole time and was there and, you know, had a chance to hold his brother, which I'm really thankful that we were able to do that and to take photos of them together. It led to a lot of trauma for me and PTSD. Um, you know, I had panic attacks and health anxiety and trauma that, I, you know, it took a very long time to work through. And I'm, you know, I'm still working through a lot of it. But that first year especially was really, really hard. This second birth began sowing seeds of doubt in Amelia's mind about everything she thought she knew about birth. It really made me rethink sort of the natural birthing approach in some ways. But she took the grief and the anxiety and applied it to a new and unplanned pathway. One thing that I did do after um, this happened was I ended up training to be a doula and childbirth educator. She dealt with the experience by educating herself and preparing herself to help others who might go through similar experiences of loss. Also, at that time, did a training online. It, the, the workshop is called Holding Space for Pregnancy Loss, and it's put on by Amy Wright Glenn through the Institute for, Institute for Birth and Death. The Institute for the Study of Birth, Breath, and Death is an organization devoted to creating the space for mindfulness about birth, life, and death. This organization works with birth and maternity professionals of all sorts, as well as regular unlicensed people. Amelia felt compelled to do all this training. Because I wanted to be there for other people who will go through similar experiences. Surprisingly, it's not as uncommon as we think it is. Um, so I wanted to be the person who was there for a high-risk pregnancy or a situation that goes wrong. So how long did it take you before you you could start just thinking about making the art? You know, I know you didn't have um, 
the time on your hands. But mm-hmm. but how long just before you were sort of giving yourself that allowance to just think about it? Yeah, I mean, I tried to make work soon after my son was born. I did. I, I, I was working on a video project sort of about him, which I still revisit sometimes. I've never finished it Um uses sort of imagery of him and, you know, is a very sort of more sad piece um, that I just kind of never went, you know, it was more of, I I feel like at the time, anything that I did creatively was not really something that I wanted to share with other people, but more just me needing to process um, what Mm -hmm. happened. So I did, you know, I was writing in my journal a lot or sketching, but just feeling stuck Um, in terms of where does it go further, you know, it's not funny. It's not funny at all. It's not like something that I feel confident to share with others. So really, um, it wasn't until after my daughter was born, and this was last year, almost a year ago. In the beginning of that, I was still kind of focused on the doula stuff. And, you know, I had, I worked on a website, and I really wanted to sort of do more doula work. Amelia was obsessed when she had begun the doula training. She had devoted hours, weeks, months to the training and workshops without even looking back. She was ready to move forward with her doula work as if she was switching careers, except she still had her teaching job. It wasn't until she had a conversation with an old friend and mentor of hers that she gained some perspective on what she was really doing. She was like, that's great. You know, I think it looks wonderful. As a friend, I feel like, you know, I worry that you're putting too much energy into this doula stuff and not enough into your creative work. Um, And it really, like, hearing her say that, it really was in some ways a turning point for me. She had been released. She could return to her life's work. The way that I went back to it was mainly through writing. I just, you know wrote. I just sat. I got a writing desk. I put it next to my daughter's crib and I wrote. Um, and a lot of it was about, you know, stuff from my son's birth. It just started to come out and kind of flow. And that slowly developed into content for the Ugly Placenta Project. So you've been um, kind of starting to process the situation uh, the whole event in this new project, The Ugly Placenta, which you sent me the script for. And I actually ended up reading it at like two in the morning on one of those nights when I couldn't sleep, which was a really intense experience to be reading it. Um, and I feel like there is a real sense of irony and this kind of conflict with reality that keeps coming back that's um coming through these reoccurring instructions for things like the recipe options for placental consumption and the various placental Mm -hmm. complications. And and then you have the process of cremating a body and all of these sort of concrete recipes are butting up against the story of your son's birth and death and this kind Mm -hmm. of internal reality that you're still processing and I'm curious if the if this the way that you presented this and the way that you parallel these things are sort of like parallels with humor in your other work. If if that feels right. like it comes from the same place, yeah, I I think that you really sort of picked that up 
um, accurately. I mean, something I've struggled with a lot with this piece is that it is so depressing or sad. You know, I've always made work about my personal life and my own experience. A lot of it is autobiographical. And so there have always been sort of these challenging elements within them, but nothing that is so, so traumatic and and hard, Uh, hard for me to write and also hard to share. So I've struggled with that, but I really intentionally, you know, wanted to incorporate some lighter moments or some, you know, irony or something that kind of um, doesn't make it just this depressing thing. So the the script and, you know, it's sort of a juxtaposition of natural birth and pregnancy expectations and then, you know, the anticipation of the birth of your child and trying to plan it all out perfectly and even some of the judgment that can come from birth expectations or the natural birthing community and then what happens when the unexpected arrives. I asked Amelia if she would read a small section from The Ugly Placenta. Five days later, I'm wheeled out of the hospital by my husband and older son, and we are on our way home. It's a beautiful April day, the first day of spring that is actually warm. Classes have ended at the university, and as we drive up the street, we see excited students pushing blue moving bins from their dorms to their parents' cars. They're excited to go home. We are not. I can barely swallow there is such a huge lump in my throat. Fifteen minutes ago, I said goodbye to my baby boy for the last time. We spent so little time together before we had to part again. That entire time, he never opened his eyes. I held him in my arms, knowing that we would not bring him home in the car seat we had brought for him. Placenta pizza. Grind placenta. Sauté in two tablespoons olive oil with four garlic cloves. Then add one-fourth teaspoon fennel, one-fourth teaspoon pepper, one-fourth teaspoon paprika, one-fourth teaspoon salt, one-half teaspoon oregano, one-fourth teaspoon thyme, and one-fourth cup of wine. Allow to stand for 30 minutes, then use with your favorite homemade pizza recipe. It's a fine placenta sausage topping. And that was something that I obviously didn't have the chance to do after my son was born. Like, the placenta was the last thing on my mind. They took it away, and I think they sent it off to um, some lab where I later got a report, you know, describing the placenta, which was really hard for me to read. I mean, I don't remember the specifics, but it was like had green undertones or, you know, the cord was hypercoiled and just the visual description of it was like really just jarring for me. Often women seem to identify with their bodies more intimately after they become pregnant. I remember being in awe of my body as I observed it change shape, rounding, softening, and stretching. The total transformation can also be difficult for the mind to accept, as it is a complete giving over of the corporeal housing for this new purpose. What is my identity now as a vessel, a grower of bodies? Even still, I'd say some women identify with their placentas, want to keep them, eat them, bury them, dry them, 
perhaps in a ceremonial acceptance of the new self. Amelia began to identify with the placenta she grew during her second pregnancy in a different way, in the face of the women she encountered in her doula training. Being the ugly placenta in the room, you know, like everyone's like, oh, we love, you know, like we love birth. And, you know, that I had a lot of issues with even the instructor who taught it. I mean, she when she talked about complications, she really brushed over them quickly. And like she called preeclampsia gestational hypertension, which is which is different. Gestational hypertension is when you get high blood pressure, but it doesn't affect any of your inner organs. Preeclampsia is when everything starts to hit the fan. You know, when I would go to speak up and say, actually, you know, that it's preeclampsia, it's not gestational hypertension, I would be, I was like literally shaking. You know, I felt my body just like the trauma and everything trying to speak up in that situation where everyone else in the room had mostly positive birth stories or were really thinking more from the positive side of it. And I really struggled with that. So that sort of juxtaposition or irony, I guess, is what I've tried to incorporate into the ugly placenta piece of, yeah, being the ugly placenta. You know, I've even after my son was born, I would just, I had to still face everyday life and it was spring and there were pregnant ladies and new babies everywhere. And I was the person without a baby um, whose placenta had failed. Does the work you've done with the ugly placenta and, I mean, any of the the projects you've taken on having to do with your son's birth, does it feel healing and is that driving you more or do you feel like it was more like you needed to have your, your daughter in your hands to be able to embark on this, to feel safe to embark on it? Yeah, I mean, it, I do think... I, I feel like it's sort of mixed. I mean, um, it, it's been a positive experience. I don't feel like it's been healing necessarily. Uh, I mean, I still sort of deeply have this really sore spot and difficulty mm-hmm. around, you know, and that I feel like that will always be a part of my life. Um, although I've evolved with it in new ways and I'm continue, it always is changing sort of the grief around that. Um, but I, I do feel like just being able to share the story has a, a healing aspect to it and kind of know that, that this is something that I can share and that I can sort of use in my creative work. I feel like it's empowering in a way. And it also makes me feel like I'm honoring my son's life by sharing his story because there's so much stigma around stillbirth and pregnancy complications and uh, people don't want to talk about it. And there's a feeling of um, almost shame or embarrassment. In the beginning, I mean, I I was afraid people were going to think that it was my fault and I did something wrong. 
I spent hours just researching preeclampsia and searching for answers and thinking back like, oh, maybe it was because I we had been in Indonesia and shortly before I became pregnant or maybe during. So I was thinking, well, maybe it was the long flight or maybe it was this or that. And I, I just kept trying to sort of find answers. Going from the traumatic experience of the birth to obsessively researching her condition, to committing to getting licensed as a doula, to taking workshops on withstanding loss. This all left Amelia wanting another chance to have her baby. I really wanted to get pregnant again, and that was another feeling of guilt, um, which I think a lot of women who lose a child struggle with. But I was told to wait a year before I got pregnant again just to let my body sort of process and and get strong again, and also to mentally prepare myself. As the doctors all said, it's going to be hard. You know, another pregnancy is going to be, it'll basically be like reliving every step of your previous pregnancy with the fear of the same thing happening again. And they were right. I mean, it was... It was grueling. I was just scared. I was so terrified that I was going to die, that my daughter was going to die. I felt guilty with my older son. Just I would look at him and think, oh, my gosh, what if I die? All of these fears especially come at night, and he was still co-sleeping with me, and I would just look at him at night and think, oh my gosh, what am I doing? I mean, it was like a feeling of being claustrophobic in your own body. I saw the maternal-fetal medicine doctors um, at the hospital, And they were amazing. They were just, I feel like every woman should have that level of prenatal care. You know, they just, they monitored me a lot more closely. They took more blood tests and I was continuously monitoring my blood pressure. And they were paying very close attention, which hadn't been the case in my previous pregnancy. And it was hard because then, because I was being paid closer attention to, made me think, if only this had been done in my previous pregnancy, you know, he could have easily been saved had it been caught earlier. It was a very mixed experience of going through the pregnancy and being afraid and also feeling deep regrets and um, being reminded of, of the previous pregnancy. Amelia's anxiety unfortunately didn't wane as she got closer to her due date, despite the fact that she had a very healthy pregnancy with no signs of trouble. I was afraid that I would have an over-medicalized birth. I had a scheduled to be induced at 39 weeks, which is sort of what they recommended. And, you know, everything proceeded normally. There weren't any complications. So they did it toward the end say, well, you could kind of push it back if you want, you know, if you don't feel comfortable inducing. We can just wait and see how it goes. But I guess every additional day is a risk because preeclampsia can come very suddenly and unexpectedly. They started counting down the days to her due date while other families were counting down the days to Christmas. Her due date was actually my birthday, January 6th. But I got a membrane sweep, I think, on the 23rd of 
December, um, and then we had the holiday, and, you know, I could feel things were going on, and it made me worried that there was something wrong. But the day after Christmas, in the morning, I woke up, and I was going into labor on my own. Amelia opted not to work with the nurse midwives with this birth for fear of seeing the midwife that was present for her second birth. But I did have a doula, and she was amazing. And then I had a couple of wonderful nurses who worked really well um, with the doula, and those were the main people in the room. I mean, because there weren't any complications, the MFM doctors weren't in the room at all until the very end. So I had the tub, and I was able to sit in the water. I didn't give birth in the water, but, you know, I had that, and I had my music playlist and I got a labor gown which I never did before. I mean I was overly prepared for this birth. I was crazy. Crazy or not, Amelia got her positive birth experience back and her daughter couldn't wait to get out and meet her. It happened really quickly. I mean she was pushed out in like two pushes Um, and so I think I was kind of stunned just from that, that actually the doula was laughing. She was saying later on, you know, my daughter was born and she was saying to me, she's here, you know, she's beautiful. She was describing her and do you want to see her? Do you want to hold her? And I was just kind of out of it still from the pain of pushing her out. But yes, once they pulled her up and I had her on my chest, it was just such a relief to hear her cry and to hold her and see her, open her eyes and all of those things that I had hoped so much for my previous birth. It was just, it was amazing. I actually requested an additional night to spend at the hospital just to have that quiet time with my daughter before we went home. Thank you for listening to this episode of Mother's Project, and thanks to Amelia for sharing such a difficult story. You can find a link to Amelia's website at mothersprojectpodcast.com. Follow us at Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Mother's Project Podcast. And please don't forget to subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen. Our theme music was written and performed by Matt Rowan. Other music was by The Blue Dot Sessions and Lee Rosevere.